Life in a Small French Village Episode 9 Marriage As most of us know, Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice, begins with the famous line, It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Austen was, of course, writing about quite another country altogether, England, not rural France, and about quite another century. The novel first appeared in 1813. But that doesn't mean things were any different in Montaigne in the 1980s, or anywhere else in the world for that matter. Therefore, it must be universally acknowledged that pretty well every single woman, whether possessed of a good fortune or not, must be in want of a husband. On our road in Montaigne, the single woman in question was the locally named La Grosse, or Fatty in English. La Grosse was now in her mid-twenties, and she really did get up to some antics. One particularly annoying tendency was to come into people's houses for a visit, after which the house owner would notice some small but cherished object had gone missing. But La Grosse's main interest was men. I did mention in an earlier episode that she was the groupie of the men who came once a year to run the bumper cars at the village end. She was also the lover of the hated and fearsome local cat killer, Chotard, who holed up in a battered half-trailer, half-shack in a field behind our street. And that was a liaison condemned by her father. During the torrid moments when La Grosse and Chotard did manage to unite, her skinny and savage father would roam the streets, shotgun in hand, threatening murder. There were other men in La Grosse's life too, telephone linemen, delivery men, roofers, builders, salesmen, and certainly a few randy husbands. In fact, no husband was safe when La Grosse came trundling down the road in search of prey especially during football season, when, as the village majorette and cheerleader, La Grosse would squeeze her abundant self into a teensy white skirt and very tight top. But time moves on inexorably, and even La Grosse must have known she would eventually lose her red-faced blush of youth. Time to settle down. By now, La Grosse's parents must also have been of the same opinion, even though marriage meant they would lose their maid of all work, La Grosse did the family's cooking, cleaning, washing, while her older brother and both parents were agricultural workers in the local fields. Most of those living on my road were agricultural workers. Some had come from other countries, Belgium, Poland, and more recently Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. In many areas of France, such labourers still worked for extremely low salaries and were housed in conditions that would be considered unacceptable by most in the last half of the 20th century. No running water and floors of dirt. In Montaigne, they did live in pleasant-looking 19th-century houses, but some lacked in comfort. 
Mary, Paul, and Guy, with their family of six children, were only permitted to live in four rooms of their house, although another four rooms in back were unused and accessible by a door on the main floor. These conditions did make it hard for some rural men to find wives, but that wasn't the only reason many men in the country remained single. Traditionally, rural sons had long been financially dependent on their parents. Any salary they earned went into their father's pockets, and this was certainly still the case in Lagrosse's family. Her older brother Marcel handed over all that he earned. And since new ideas of independence meant that a wife was unlikely to accept living with in-laws and being dependent upon them, Marcel, like many in his position, remained unmarried. For those who owned their own farms, the problems were similar. There were often many children in each family, but only one son would be able to take over the farm, and younger brothers became dependent labourers. Soon, even those who inherited farms found their holdings too small to be financially viable in the modern world. Obliged to let out their fields to a wealthier neighbour, they rented themselves and their horse out as labourers. Then, as farm machines began eliminating work, small farms were sold off, and men and women left for the towns and cities and for work in the factories. Now, however, Lagrosse's father had decided it was definitely time his daughter married. And locally. He was a tyrannical, violent, and taciturn man who expected his orders to be obeyed, at least by his family. But this wasn't unusual. Agricultural workers had little, if any, say in farming affairs, and there was no chance for them to improve their lot, their housing, or their salaries although landowners and farm managers depended totally on them, their strength and dedication. But low status and reduced education, many went out to work in the fields when quite young, had created a static and inward-looking social class. Uncommunicative, suspicious, sometimes brutal, they were far less open than the peasants of even the most forgotten parts of the country. And so it was, that if Le Grosse's father had decided she would marry, and that she would marry within a few short months, that was exactly what would happen. Women, too, had a rather hard time of it out in the country. They also laboured in the fields, but at the end of the day, once they were home, the domestic chores were theirs as well. No wonder many young girls dreamt not of marriage to a local boy, but of leaving home going to live in the city, going into service, even if that meant that marriage would be forever out of the question. What about Lagrosse? Did she dream that the men passing through town would one day take her out of all this and provide her with suburban bliss? Or was her licentious behaviour a reaction to paternal dominance? Her mother, a large, muscular and rather handsome woman, did have her own secret life. She would retire to the village cemetery with the farm manager whenever the urge came upon him. By now, of course, the church had lost its moral hold on villagers, and no one bothered claiming that celibacy or even faithfulness were desirable. But where would Lagrosse's father find a mate? 
Her goings on were well known in this village, and she certainly couldn't be considered the perfect candidate for a long-term relationship. Not only that, she was a very loud and vulgar person, and she took a sharp-tongued delight in humiliating those she could. She considered herself quite superior. However, pushed into action, Cupid got to work to resolve the problem. Now, at exactly this same time, a very domineering woman in the neighbouring town of Mantoy decided it was high time her son married, something that didn't seem inevitable. He was exceedingly timid, and not one to pursue or even chat with the ladies. Far from it, he was a social catastrophe, and she decided he needed a hefty motherly shove. Mother, who lived in a large house and deemed herself far superior to those around her, began to make inquiries. Which women among her son's former classmates were still unmarried? And via the old reliable grapevine, La Grosse's name came up. True, La Grosse came from a small village, not a town as fine as the one she lived in, and she was only the daughter of an agricultural worker, thus not of a socially desirable level. But such things needed to be overlooked. As far as she was concerned, her son was obviously not the brightest button in the box. An opinion that was quite unfair, for he was a gentle, kind man, and not at all stupid. But he would have to obey. So one fine day, when Lagos's family was busy chowing down the midday meal, there was a knock on the door. Outside stood this tall, excessively thin, painfully shy young man. He was here at the behest of his mother, he explained, and his mother had heard that La Grosse was still unmarried, so he had come to propose. It was said with no preamble and no fuss. In the country, such matters were straightforward. And so the deed was settled then and there, around the dirty dishes and leftovers. That the young man and Lagos hadn't seen each other in years, that they might not have anything in common, that parents were arranging a marriage without giving their children a say-so, a custom long out of fashion, seemed to bother no one, least of all the two people concerned. On with the courtship. At every possible opportunity, La Grosse led her man through the village like a prize bull. But he didn't seem in the least perturbed. On the contrary, he looked rather chuffed to have such a steady and domineering guide, to be so appreciated. And, of course, proud of her new acquisition, La Grosse brought him to the next social event in the village, the bingo evening. And there they sat, bingo cards in hand, in the front row of the social hall. La Grosse shouted, roared, called attention to herself and her mate, let everyone know she was the star here. He, shy, terrified, meek, blushed constantly. Then suddenly the number 69 came up in the bingo game, and that was all La Grosse needed. Sixty-nine, she shouted as loudly as she could. Sixty-nine, hey, didn't you hear that? And she elbowed her fiancé soundly in the ribs. Sixty-nine, sixty-nine, we know all about sixty-nine, don't we? We know all about it. 
and twisting this way and that, she continued bellowing sixty-nine and making certain all in the assembly heard. Was it possible for someone to become redder and still survive? The future groom twitched in wretched misery, but La Grosse only roared with laughter, elbowing him again and again with great complicity. A few months later, the wedding took place. The couple bought a house in a neighbouring village, had two children, and, according to all reports, lived happily ever after. <laughs>